You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's share of the infrastructure bill is said to be about $2.8 billion, more than originally expected. The timing of the release of some of the federal money is still unclear, but there aren't the short use-or-lose lead times. We spoke with Senator Brian Schatz yesterday about what those funds might be used for. We're going to get uh, somewhere around $2.8 billion at a minimum for roads and bridges and highways and uh, clean energy and climate change mitigation and public transit and broadband. So this is a really exciting time for for the state of Hawaii. This is probably the biggest uh, federal investment in infrastructure, one-time infusion that we've seen in, you know, many generations. So we're really excited to have done this bill. And goodness, we certainly need it. We do have aging bridges, you know, on the Big Island. Uh, I think there's just some additional funding. I think that you folks put out a release on uh, on Maui. Yes, well, that's a that's a separate uh, separate pot uh, of money. Uh, competitive grant process. But yes, twenty two million um, uh, for the realignment of the highway there. And you know, there's 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 no shortage of needs. Um, just general repair and maintenance of our roads, but also uh, we've got a lot of roads that are coastal, and we're going to have to realign or harden or otherwise prepare for coastal inundation in, in ways that we haven't had to uh, before. And this infrastructure bill, though, it will allow for some of that, right, uh, some of those uh, changes due to climate change? Yes, there's $1.2 billion estimated for Hawaii to, to repair and rebuild roads, but there's also a focus within that $1.2 billion on uh, climate change mitigation, resilience, and safety. So, you know, we think of Ka'ava, we think of Honolulu-Ilani Highway. There are a number of places where, you know, um, the road to Lahaina, uh, where, you know, there are roads, you know, almost uh, literally falling into the ocean, and that's going to take some resources to either stabilize them or even realign them uh, in some cases. What do you think is going to be the most impactful of the funding that we've gotten under this bill? Well, I'm, I'm most, I don't know what will be the most impactful. It probably depends how you travel. For some people, it's the transit money, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for, or for the bus. For others, you know, the, our airports uh, could certainly use uh, an infusion of capital, and they're going to get that. Obviously, all of us use the roads, and uh, we would all like uh, shorter commute times and fewer potholes. But personally, the thing I'm most excited about is about $160 uh, million for uh, broadband across the state of Hawaii, $100 million generally for the state of Hawaii, and $60 million for the Department of Hawaiian Homeland to try to connect uh, Native Hawaiians uh, to, to the Internet. So um, that's the first time uh, that we've ever been able to get anything close to that amount of money for, for broadband. Uh, and I worked really hard on that, especially the DHHLP, so uh, really happy uh, about that. And DHHL, I think, has some decisions to make about how to deploy the money, whether they want to do infrastructure uh, to make sure homes are connected or use some of those resources to actually just subsidize people who can't afford. You know, there may be existing infrastructure, but they can't afford the monthly fee to be on the Internet. And, uh, you know, we all know there are kids in Hawaii and kids across the country who were forced online in order to study, but then didn't have a broadband connection. So we really shut them out of the educational process for more than a year and a half, and that was just unconscionable. We know that, you know, there is some mapping in those remote areas that is underway now just to get a better feel as to where the gaps are. 
you know, there was that program that Sandwich Isles had rolled out and, you know, they've had some issues, legal issues uh, with the uh, federal funds that they did get, you know, initially. But with this pandemic, we've seen a lot of good work go on. DOT at Sniffin tells us that they had a, a project going on the Big Island where they were able to, to put in some um, you know high-tech upgrades, and it, it allowed areas that didn't have broadband to get access, whether it was for telehealth or banking uh, or for remote learning, that you know they're really trying to plan better so that uh, the folks that are out there in these remote areas get the service that they need. That's right. And nowadays, you know, whether it's education or healthcare or economic opportunities, uh, you know, everybody needs broadband. This is not just a, you know, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people thought of it as, you know, it'd be nice to have. And, you know, wow, that would be amazing if I could watch, you know, uh, movies on on the Internet or play video games. Uh, But that's not what's happening anymore with the with the sort of explosion of telehealth during the pandemic, after we changed several laws to essentially permit it across the country, people need broadband connections to interact with their primary care physicians. People need broadband uh, to talk to their teacher or professor. A lot of times they need broadband to just work, to have a meeting. And so um, everybody needs broadband in the same way that, you know, a long time ago, people needed electrification. And the country set out on a course of rural electrification with the premise that it doesn't matter how much it costs, every single American deserves to have electricity. And then we decided every single American should be connected or should have access to a telephone line. And I think this is uh, uh, along those lines um, and consistent with that tradition to say, just because it may be more expensive to connect a resident who lives, you know, in Ulupalakua as opposed to in Manoa, doesn't mean they don't have a basic right to be connected to the internet because that's really the way society is operating now. What can you say about the release of this money? You know, how different is it from you know the uh, previous uh, pots of money that we've seen during the pandemic? I mean, I, I know DOT was saying that they were hoping to get additional guidance today or tomorrow. So you know, it depends on the pot of money, and I don't want to be too technical here, but there's sort of two things here. The first is that this is not emergency spending, you know, related to COVID relief. And so, although obviously we, we don't want it to take forever, this is not the kind of emergency where you're just basically trying to push cash out because, you know, we all voluntarily shut down everything and so people needed to feed themselves. This is different. This is infrastructure. And so it has to be done in a planful way, in a responsible way. So we do feel like the time frame for expending these dollars will, you know, range from anywhere from, say, three to five months from now to, you know, three to five years from now. And that's appropriate because this is supposed to be a, you know, five or 10 year horizon spending bill. And so we want the agencies to do the right thing. You know, Ed Sniffen's a good example. Some of the counties are also a good example. The airports are good examples. They already have their projects prioritized and they can basically just work their list depending on how much money they get. And so they don't have to do a lot of additional thinking. They've, they already have their a priority matrix, and if they get an infusion of $180 million, then they just work their list lower and lower. And um, I think, you you know, you, you could confirm with most government agencies that, that do transportation or other infrastructure that uh, there's no shortage of need. You know, it took a long time to get agreement on this bill. You have another big bill that you've got to tackle. You, look, I, I'm never really troubled by 
the difficulty of passing legislation. It's supposed to be hard. Our system is set up that, uh, in such a way that makes it intentionally difficult to enact a new law. And the kinds of things that we're doing are really ambitious. And the Senate is divided exactly 50-50. And so uh, these things are understandably challenging. I sort of didn't come into this year. I came into this year with great optimism, but I also didn't have any illusions about it being easy. We are, I think the House is very likely to pass uh, the Build Back Better bill uh, either Thursday or Friday, maybe Saturday. And then the Senate is going to work its will. And I do think we'll have a law uh, by the end of, of December. And for me, the key piece, and there are a lot of things in it, but for me, the key pieces are reducing the cost of prescription medicine, universal pre-K, and climate action. And like I said, there's probably a dozen more things in, in it that are worthy of mention, but those are the anchors for me because they matter very much to people across the state of Hawaii. That was Senator Brian Schatz talking to us about the infrastructure bill and also the upcoming vote on the Build Back Better bill. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We've been hearing from charter school voices this month, and we have a story about Kamalani Academy coming up later in the show. So we're testing your knowledge of charter schools in Hawaii for today's Backyard Quiz. Kamalani is one of 38 charter schools across our state. Uh, they're public schools operated independently of the public school system, either by nonprofit or for-profit organizations. Hawaii followed suit in 1994 with the Educational Omnibus Bill, creating Student-Centered Schools, or SCS. The new law allowed schools to implement alternative administrative and educational policies and goals without being bound by Department of Education policies in most state laws. In 1995, the state's first student-centered school opened its doors on Oahu. So for today's Backyard Quiz... Do you know the name of Hawaii's first charter school? Call 808-941-3689 if you're here on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Uh, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com.
You know, there's been much talk about how the lack of computer chips was expected to slow auto sales across the country during this pandemic. So the third quarter numbers for Hawaii sales surprised many people. We actually posted higher gains than the national average, a lot higher. We talked to Dave Rolfe, head of the Hawaii Dealers Association, this morning about the trends. You know, I think the higher sales were resulted from pent-up demand. We didn't anticipate that they would come back that quickly. And so Jeff Foltz, who produces the Hawaii Auto Outlook uh, for us and does for uh, 20 markets around the country, um, he had, um, you know, uh, the baseline at 56,000 vehicles. uh, And then he thought that the downside might be 55, but he also thought an upside could be 57,000. And to put it in perspective, you know, 50,000 vehicles a year is about what we've been doing for the past 20 years. And that's about how many vehicles are crushed also. So you take 20 times 50, that's about a million vehicles on the roadway, and that's how it works out. So the outlook for next year? Next year, on the upside, it'll be a a really positive year uh, with 57,000 vehicles, uh, many of them electric vehicles. Now there's a movement toward that, all still below double digits. Uh, And on the... uh, you know, downside only 55,000 vehicles. So in both cases, that's a, a relatively robust return from, you know, uh, sales being down in the 40s, depressed by the, you know, the COVID protocols. And the supply chain, you know, issue, the production is what's going to, I think, limit the sales, right? That's exactly right. The The supply chain disruption is what will hold everything back, possibly. And we know that that will extend all the way through 2022. In many cases, people are going into dealerships and ordering vehicles, knowing that they'll they will come in. They'll be kind of first in line for those that uh, you know are produced off the production lines. I had a chance to talk to a dealer over the weekend, and he explained to me the complexities of putting cars together on production lines that automotive manufacturers have with the 31,000 parts that all have to come from everywhere and all meet up there in time to put into those cars and those various different models, I mean, and and, uh, variations of their, you know, let's say 40 models of one make. It's an amazing thing, the automotive supply chain, just absolutely amazing. And the fact that it's recovered enough to have people start to get their cars now in these numbers, that's really eye-opening. Well, you know, Servco told us yesterday that uh, people, customers, are willing to wait uh, so they can get exactly what they want on their vehicle. Yes, that's happening more than in the past. And I think uh, way back when I came to Hawaii, almost 50 years ago, you know, pe- people kind of had to wait for almost everything, it seemed. But nowadays, with supply chain so sophisticated and also inventories being so large, people were able to get what they wanted, uh, pretty much what they wanted right away. But now, with the supply chain disrupted, it's a little bit like the old days with people ordering, but they're getting exactly what they want. How do you see the sale of uh, electric vehicles coming into play? And, you know, I mean, do you think that affected our sales at all this year? You know, it's still below double digits, and uh, it, it depends enormously on what's going to happen in Congress, uh, because right now the Congress is is debating what some call the reconciliation bill, uh, Build Back Better America. And it includes large amounts of money on the hood of electric vehicles, a $7,500 tax credit for, I I think, 52 models that we're looking at right now. Uh, And there's a proposal to make an additional tax credit for some uh, vehicles that are produced uh, in uh, uh, unionized manufacturers. So there's quite a bit of 
discussion going on right now about that. And that's in front of Congress right now. But that's quite a bit of money put on the hood of these electric vehicles bringing their costs more in line with the with the uh, internal combustion vehicles. Looking back at the number of sales just through then this third quarter, you know, compared to the U.S. trend, mm-hmm. the U.S. was, what, 18 percent? Hawaii was up 32, mm-hmm. almost 33 percent? Yes. And, and uh, again, there are probably some reasons that uh, that it was, you know, it's a measure of, while we talk about sales, it really is a measure of registrations. And as registrations were slowed for a number of different reasons uh, during the COVID period, uh, particularly in Hawaii, uh, you know, that was a a depressed number. And now it has come back robustly in that the registration process has moved out much, much more. Uh, Again, the COVID situation affected all of us uh, in government and in, uh, you know, the retail world very much the same way. So things slowed down for that period. And now they're I don't know. What does that say, though, about the data? Is that an, an accurate picture, though, of, of what happened? You know, I, th- I think you have to take that caveat uh, into consideration when you look at that number, that we're probably coming back a little bit better than uh, the mainland, but, but but also our sales were more depressed than the mainland, too. So that that's the thing to take into consideration. Anytime you see these large increases over a, a previously uh, reduced number for a variety of reasons. You just you have to take it for a grain of salt that that's not a normal situation, and not not to put too much stock into that. Just to note that the trend is coming back, and that sales are becoming more robust. And uh, it just is they're somewhat delayed by the uh, you know the chip shortage and the supply chain disruptions. What can you tell us about the sales, uh, the trends with sales, let's say, for hybrid cars, you know, hybrid and electric cars? I can just say with that much money being placed on the hood of those vehicles, of the electric vehicles, that will, that will undoubtedly affect those, the uh, adoption of those vehicles. And also the fact that under the infrastructure bill, there were thousands thousands of uh, D.C. fast chargers authorized across the country, many of which will be in Hawaii. Uh, the Hawaii Electric Company has, has already given an indication of how many are going to be going in. So some of the things that have been roadblocks to EV adoptions, like uh, perhaps a perceived shortage of, uh, of uh, fast chargers, that's going to be kind of solved pretty much pretty soon. And uh, as, as that money becomes available and as those fast chargers become installed and people – uh, get more, uh, you know, used to the, what, 52 models that are now available? Uh, I remember in 2011, just 10 years ago, there, there was like one major model that came out, and it sold 300. Now, you know, the EVs are in excess of 3,000 a year, so and dramatically uh, improving in adoption. But again, still below uh, double digits. It will take a little while for the thing to, to have its free market uh, uptake, and that's the key thing that we want to see continue is to have people have a choice. And, uh, you know, we prefer not to see any mandates that would re- require purchase of those kind of, of those vehicles until the public is ready to purchase them. Because at the moment, the moment they're more expensive than the than regular internal combustion vehicle. And Offset how, again, you know, by the, by the tax credits. And how does Hawaii stack up uh, compared to other states? Well, you know, because we have short commutes and we have, you know, excellent public policies in place and a high occupancy vehicle lane that you've just seen now in the news, too. And because we have really Goldilocks temperatures, I mean, the the batteries enjoy 
these perfect temperatures is not too hot and not too cold, and that makes for um, maximum mileage from the batteries. That we've had, at what point, the second highest adoption rate in, in the country, just uh, second only to California. And I think uh, I've heard recently that we might be the sixth highest at the, at the moment because other states are really becoming uh, uh, having sales more prevalent of these uh, electric vehicles. So the key thing is going to be getting supply. That's the key thing. And, you know, there's been lots of anticipation about an electric pickup truck because uh, people here really like trucks in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, 75% of our purchases are trucks. Uh, but you got to remember in that category, uh, there's SUVs and vans and trucks are all considered under the truck category. So mm. 75% of all the vehicle, new vehicles purchased, three out of four are in the truck category. Only one out of four in the uh, car category, the sedan. Uh, yeah, trucks are popular because of our outdoor lifestyle and just because uh, of a variety of reasons, true for the SUV. you got that command to driving position a lot of people like, and the ability to carry a lot of groceries and perfect for families, and, and vans the same way for the soccer crews. Uh, anyway, it goes on and on the, uh, about vehicle choice from uh, by people, and, um, you know, it, it has to do with uh, – you know, what, what you enjoy and what you want to have in a new car. It's a real thrill to buy one. And uh, when it has this many features now, especially the ones that are offered in these new models, it's it's fantastic. This last outlook was very eye-opening. We saw so many changes happening in the industry. Some say more changes than in the last 100, 100 years, particularly with the movement to renewable fuel and uh, electricity. In the past, dealers and their folks in sales just sold the vehicle. Now, they're really selling the vehicle and the fuel to some degree. So there's a lot of knowledge that has to be gained about the new fuel electricity. That was Dave Rolf, Executive Director of the Hawaii Auto Dealers Association. He was talking about the latest Hawaii car sales numbers, which exceeded the national average this third quarter. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii International Film Festival and its 41st annual Fall Festival, with films from around the world streaming online now to the 28th. Schedule and tickets at HIFF.org. President Joe Biden has signed an historic infrastructure bill. We're taking a monumental step forward to build back better as a nation. Tucked into the trillion-dollar plan, nuclear power as part of America's clean energy future. There's not a sufficient recognition of nuclear as being carbon-free. Climate goals, safety concerns, and the future of nuclear power, that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, whose nearly 700 employees help to keep Hawaii on the move with more than 100 heli and 76 gas stations on Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island. ParHawaii.com. now time for our reality check. Could the city's proposed vacation rental bill starve windward Oahu businesses? Well, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton joins us to discuss that now. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. 
So, yeah, we've got a crackdown on illegal vacation rentals happening. Yes, it's another one. And if the city council passes Bill 41, as it's called, it could mean another push to crack down on illegal or unlicensed vacation rentals all over Oahu. And that has been a real problem, you know, over in the Kailua-Lanikai area, as well as, you know, Oahu's North Shore. But what were you able to find out? Yeah, so some of the key things, we're really looking at the economic impact of this and what it might be and not assessing and debating whether it was a good or bad policy to do this. And a couple of things that were surprising was, one, um, a lot of these uh, vacation rentals on Oahu are already gone. Um, They've already been taken off the market because of a previous uh, bill, a previous uh, piece of legislation that the uh, city council passed back in 2019. Um, And then also because of the pandemic, that also has you know, caused uh, there to be a little bit of a decline in in um, the inventory of these of these units. Well, you know, uh, I know that uh, on my street, just an example, they were uh, some uh, rentals happening, vacation rentals, and uh, for a time there, they had were renting it out to just you know regular people, more long term uh, residents. So that was kind of a welcome change. But I think they still kind of sneak in somebody every now and then. Yeah, well, that's what happened. So apparently in 2019, there were. Let, let's. I'm going to use round numbers because a lot of these are estimates, which is an interesting thing. Nobody knows exactly how many there are, uh, except maybe Airbnb. But even I think Airbnb would have a hard time nailing it down exactly. Um, but let's say there were 10,000 at the peak in 2019. That dropped by a whole bunch, um, by maybe 3,000 after the 2019 uh, legislation. So those were gone. People thought, oh, they're going to crack down on me. And then when it became clear that the city wasn't really enforcing the law, they started coming back again. But then not much longer, not much long after that, COVID came along and everything changed. So the numbers are uh, reduced, but there is still a concern that, uh, you know, they're going to just kind of really be on their, their uh, breathing down their necks so that this illegal yeah. activity doesn't happen. Well, there will be more gone. So so the point is, yes, there are already a bunch gone, so the, it doesn't drop as much, but it'll still drop by thousands of units additionally, which means um, in the end probably millions of tourists uh, per year by some estimates, um, and uh, that means a lot of money. So then the question is, well, who loses in this equation? Of course, you know, the argument would be hotels, restaurants, um, and uh, bars and other places, eating and drinking establishments. They win because people can't go to Costco and uh, Foodland and buy their food and be at an Airbnb any, as much anymore. Um, so, so the winners are the hotels and the restaurants. The losers are uh, those kind of retail food places. Um, but then the other losers are uh, possibly retail establishments in those areas that really are set up to, to cater to tourists, you know, places that sell expensive pillows and nice souvenirs or expensive Hawaii T-shirts. These kinds of things, the idea is that, well, without tourists, those kind of businesses just aren't going to be able to make it. And, you know, we've seen Alexander and Baldwin put a lot of money in Kailua and Kailua Town to really develop that. And a lot of small businesses have come in, and the question is, are those going to be able to make it? They're already seeing a big decline in tourists. 
the tour buses aren't going in there as much because we don't have the Japanese tourists. So already they're suffering, and they could just be hit or likely will be hit with another big blow if this thing goes through. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of little boutique stores, uh, kind of beachy, uh, with a beachy feel, right? Um, But I don't know if a lot of uh, residents are shopping there. Yeah, and so that's what we've heard. So they are getting some uh, business from residents and military and other things, uh, other people. But it's still the question is, is that going to be enough over the long haul? Yeah, I I know that uh, with the Japanese tourists, uh, uh, you know, not uh, traveling here just yet. um, (laughs) It's like now's your chance to go to all those uh, brunch places while you can, because otherwise the lines might be back. That's right. But and eventually that might be a game changer. We just have to see how things are going to shake out. All right. Well, um, be lots to, to, to watch for as the bill makes its way through the city council. And we'll see what kind of enforcement uh, will actually happen. Yes, we will. Thank you, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much, Stuart. We have been chatting with reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org. State Health Department Vital Statistics Department says preliminary numbers for deaths in October jumped to 1,009 after falling to 852 in September. The highest count was more than 1,200 in August. The last four months were extremely difficult for the state's largest crematory. Scott Power is the president of Oahu Mortuary and Oahu Cemetery and Crematory. He talked to us about how it had to double shifts at the crematory to accommodate the numbers that it normally deals with. Looking back on it, I mean, we just got maxed out in terms of our staff, the number of calls that we got, and, and things that we were trying to just deal with. And I think the industry as a whole was, was challenged during that time period. And, and when I look back at some of the statistics, um, apparently what what it looks like is July, and I'm looking at statistics for the overall deaths that occurred in, in, in statewide, um, was very normal in terms of the average number of people that passed away during July. But then in, in August, suddenly it spiked, and it jumped up um, by 200, roughly 20% higher in August. And and that was, you know, when this, this Delta variant was beginning to kind of peak here. And, and I don't have a correlation of the increase in, in the number of people passing to exactly to COVID, but there certainly was a spike. And then... I think what was happening, what we experienced, is that when families would call us, they were hoping that the you know the Delta variant would would begin to drop back down. So they were asking for us to have services, you know, later, and you know maybe 30 days out or, or 45 days out, so they could have more people attend. Um, and just speaking for Oahu Mortuary, that delay of having people begin try to push their services back caused, you know, therefore somebody's passed away, that person needs to be in a morgue somewhere, either in our care center or perhaps in a hospital or with the medical examiner, um, other locations. And so if other 
funeral homes were experiencing that same sort of a request and a delay, the system, I don't think, was built for that kind of a delay. I mean, we think about statewide, uh, roughly 1,000 people on average pass away in the state of Hawaii. And, and so if somebody, everybody starts pushing back their service because they want to have more people attend, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the storage capacity of our, of our system. And uh, so you know, just speaking for a while mortuary, we, our, our numbers doubled in terms of the number of people that we were, we were trying to, uh, that we had in our care center during this peak period, which was at the end of August and the end of September. And, um, and now, but now, fortunately, you know, September was actually lower than average, and now October has come back to just about average, the number of calls that we're getting. So fortunately, from our, from our perspective at least, the, the number of people that we have in our care center has gone back to average. Right, so and, we, and it's manageable. Yeah, it's manageable, right, yeah. So we're not maxing out, and our staff is, is more able to deal with the the load, if you will, in terms of the call volume and, and being able to, you know, work with the families through, through their each situation. Yes, we, we did hear from the ME's office, you know, that the families that they were in contact with you know, were saying that, oh, they couldn't get a date for, um, you know, services, you know, uh, mm-hmm. until sometime in November. And this was, you know, more than a month ago. And, and like you said, I think families were just keeping their fingers crossed that the restrictions would be loosened here on Oahu. You know, certainly, you know, other uh, facilities on the neighbor islands, they're under different regulations. So uh, the capacity mm-hmm. issue is not so much of a problem as it was here. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, certainly on Oahu here, we were, uh, it got to be very stressful and just, you know, we were maxed out uh, in terms of our capacity. And so, you know, the fact that we're back to where more of an average uh, kind of caseload, if you will, is actually quite welcome uh, on lots of different levels. Our normal average of somebody that we would have, the number, the capacity of our morgue would be in the 30 to 35 range. And we we peaked at uh, 73. Uh, so just about double uh, what we would normally experience, expect to have in our care center at any one moment in time. And many families are turning to cremation these days, and I know that uh, you folks did make improvements there to the facility. I don't know, were you having to extend your hours for the crematory at all? We did, yeah. So we ended up going to um, uh, double shifts so that we were cremating in, into the evening. And, uh, and just to get through that time period, that yeah, was very helpful to, to um, you know, be able to, to do the cremations on the timelines that the, the families desired. And we are seeing the restrictions uh, loosen at, uh, you know, long-term care facilities across the nation. You know, I think families are are happy to be able to reunite with their loved ones. Yes, and certainly the presence of of having loved ones and friends and family around uh, around the the family members is is tremendous and tremendously important to have that kind of support. Uh, So very understandable that families would want to be able to push things back a little bit and, and, you know, to be able to have and be able to be around those that are that can support them. And were you forced to do any services, let's say, you know, outdoors versus indoors? Well, we did. We were doing what we call a drive-through. So during that time period, in order to accommodate folks, we would have a, a, set up a, a basically a tent, a canopy, 
and we would actually have their, their loved one, you know, uh, outside so that the, they could then, their, their family and friends could drive through and have a couple minutes or a few minutes just to say their hellos and give, give their condolences to the family and then move through. So that was pretty unique. Um, but it was because we were so restricted to just 10 people indoors and, you know, 15 people outside, a total of 25 during this time period, um, the drive-through became actually a pretty thought-after service that we were able to do and very unusual. Um, but, you know, it was helpful because the families could then have more people come by and get their condolences. And what are you hearing from your uh, colleagues, you know, uh, across the state, just about how they're coping? Across the board, from what, I, what I'm hearing is that the numbers have dropped, and so everybody is back to much more of a normal state at this point in time. And I think so as a consequence, they're able to be much more back in a normal service routine and time frames and things. So it's, it's definitely moved in the right direction. You know, now with the churches and uh, have begun to open up and they have greater capacity, from our perspective, if someone wants to have a bigger gathering, then we're referring them to out back to, to the churches that have large sanctuaries who can accommodate more people. And and so very, we're fortunate in, in that things are beginning to loosen up in that way. And, uh, so that's what we're suggesting that people do if they want to have a larger gathering. That was Scott Power, president of Oahu Mortuary and Oahu Cemetery in Crematory, reflecting on the pressure that the pandemic has put on its operations. He's grateful that the COVID numbers seem to be subsiding uh, and is hopeful there won't be a resurgence. today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of Hawaii's charter schools. Minnesota was the first state to pass a charter school law in 1991, but our state was not far behind, passing a bill to create student-centered schools in 1994. The first charter school in our islands opened its doors the next year, but this school was not brand new. It started out as a traditional public school in 1928 at its location on 19th and Harding Avenues in Kaimuki. In 1990, the school community realized that to prepare students for the 21st century, they would need more than traditional practices. So it began a five-year restructuring project in 1992 with a three-pronged approach. One, developing a new curriculum framework for students. Two, promoting parent participation. And three, enhancing professional development for teachers. Then in 1995, it became Hawaii's first charter school. And if you've got all the clues that we've given you, then you know we are talking about Wailai Elementary, the answer to today's backyard quiz. But we didn't have any winners today. If you have an idea for a backyard quiz, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience In Human Terms, a refreshed installation featuring a new sound suit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. HonoluluMuseum.org. In 1981, HPR debuted with the lush and wild strains of Mahler, broadcast from the old varsity building on the campus of UH Manoa. The lore goes that the signal only reached a few blocks radius. We've grown quite a bit since then. We've moved to a larger space, which we own outright, and we have two stations that reach across the state and beyond through broadcast and digital channels. 40 years of Hawaii Public Radio made possible by you. Thanks for believing. You know, we cover a wide variety of topics on the conversation, and we do welcome feedback from listeners on our talkback line. Here are a couple of emails that we received after our two call-in shows about replacing the Aloha Stadium. I want to say how much I enjoyed today's show. I really enjoyed the past governor's panel. Certainly the discussions from the governor's panel gave me info based on real experience and wisdom. The various side comments were enlightening and amusing. That was from Pam Lopez. And another one. Hello, I heard the conversation last week and this week. With all due respect, the former governors seem out of touch with what's going on. Senator Wakai and the stadium officials know firsthand what the issues are. The governor suggested UH for a large stadium, but Manoa can barely handle traffic when school is in session. Housing and the stadium are comparing apples and oranges. The current Aloha Stadium area, the most central location for everyone. Lastly, the governors had their chance to improve the stadium situation and have not done so, not to mention affordable housing. Again, all due respect, but this is aggravating. And here's a voicemail that we received. I'm Joe. I'm from Kalihi Valley, and I'm a retired citizen here. We're in a time when it looks as though environmental challenges are going to be asking for less carbon, and we know how thick air travel and tourism is in the carbon economy. So when I hear leaders making plans with the assumptions of the path of a linear progression into more and more of yesterday's the same, or even worse, trying to get Hawaii more and more a tourist center, and no conversation about how we teach you values. And, you know, I think it's time for Hawaii to grow up a little bit to the truth about what our existential challenges are instead of just giving us what we want. I mean, a good democracy helps people know what to want to shape their values. And so it's a fraught, I know, a difficult conversation, but without it, we're doomed, I think. So I'd like to see that happen. Thank you. And we'd like to hear what you have to say about an issue or an interview that we've done here on the show. Leave a voicemail on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Kamalani Academy is a charter school out towards Oahu's North Shore. Its principal, Amanda Fong, plans to fight a decision uh, from the Charter School Commission to not allow the additional stool counts in its remote learning program toward its enrollment in per-pupil funding. That decision stands to cut the school's budget in half. Kamalani recently was awarded an educational grant to expand its outreach to Native Hawaiians. But here's Fong explaining why it may take legal action. So we've been doing virtual and in-person learning since last school year, so August of 2020. And the, according to the, the the Charter School Commission, there's a process for 
getting the okay to continue this remote learning since, you know, everybody is back face-to-face. Yeah, so there's a process if you want to do virtual learning as an amendment to your charter contract, but there's actually not a process according to the May 13th commission guidance that was given out to all 37 charter schools on May 13th of 2021 by the commission. You're saying that that the process that you should have followed was to go through and amend the contract. So that directly um, contradicts their guidance that they gave on May 13th to approve all 37 charter schools to do virtual learning. And so it's a really tough situation right now just because, you know, the commission guidance that they gave on uh, Monday was that, oh, well, you can still teach the kids, but we're not going to fund you, you know, which is a really tough situation for any charter school that already has low PPA. PPA is what? For pupil allocations. So our funding is almost half of what Hawaii DOE schools receive. What was your enrollment, I guess, prior to going with this uh, virtual option? We were were at about 168 students without doing virtual. Um, We started, we brought on a virtual company because last year, We did both. Um, The teachers taught in person and online, and it was really difficult for them. Um, So myself as the um, only principal here at Kamalani Academy, I had told them I wouldn't do that as the numbers were lessening at the end of last school year. When they started increasing this school year, I actually started looking for a company to help subside some of that work for our educators on campus so they wouldn't have to do both. I did look at a few companies, and I found one, which just happened to be Harmony Education, because other charter schools have been using them. You know, I did my own research on them and thought it would be a great option due to the May 13th guidance by the commission that approved all 37 charter schools to do virtual and blended learning. What we're told by the commission is that there are nine requests before the board to be able to fund the remote learning that they're doing. Uh, they've approved two, and I think, you know, there's just a number in the in the pipeline. Uh, but you are uh, trying to fight their decision. What these other schools are doing is they're amending their contract to do long-term virtual learning. That is not the uh, May 13th guidance is for temporary for this school year. We were only doing it for this school year and that's why we didn't apply for an amendment at this time because it's something that we are not sure that we want to do for the long haul after this school year. That guidance specifically stated that if you wanted to do it longer than the 21-22 school year, that you then would have to um, apply for an amendment, which we're not even sure is what we want to do. All right, but you're still in a in a in a pickle because if your in, enrollment count is now up over 300, you know, and they're trying to figure out the funding. What the commission says it's it's a, a matter of quality control. And if it was a quality control issue, in my opinion, then they would have said unenroll those kids and you shouldn't be teaching them. They wouldn't have said, oh, keep teaching them. We're just not going to give you funding. So if it really was about quality education, then that would have been what was given, not, oh, you can keep teaching them, but we're just not going to give you funding to teach them. That was a bigger issue for me is because at the end of the day, all these kids who need to be learning due to COVID and they can't go to school for whatever their home reason is, that's what really makes it difficult. So how much funding do you stand to lose? About 50% of our funding. Which so is how that's much? that's around $1.3 million. And when would that take effect? As far as I know, it would take effect immediately. We haven't lost anything, but we wouldn't be getting any extra funding from what we currently have received. What are your options? We are seeking legal guidance through the DAG's office, which is our legal representation. And we also are consulting with a couple other um, people, um, 
what do you call it? We're consulting with some other people on the side to see what options do we have. Do we have to go to the USDOE? Because there isn't a law that allows the commission to actually change our enrollment from the October 15th statute. Talk about where you folks are located. Yeah, so the community that um, our school is in is Wahiwa, and um, we are actually in between two large military installations. So we do have a high traffic of military families who move in and out of the area. And that community was hard hit by COVID cases. Yeah, so we were actually a red zone school, and that's why, you know, at the end of the year, last school year, we weren't planning on doing virtual learning this year, and it just happened in July when numbers started increasing. The numbers in Wahiawa were so high, the Department of Health was reaching out um, to do community testing events on our um, campus because we have a large lawn, and they came out and did that on our campus because of the large numbers in Wahiawa. So you feel that's kind of why a number of parents wanted to go to remote learning. Oh, yes, definitely. And, you know, one of the other things as I talked to some of the parents was that they went and reached out to the DOE and they didn't have enough spots for them. And so because of that, they were looking for another way to educate their kids during COVID but not having to have them go to school. So they signed up with your program? Yes. Okay. So that's why the numbers went from 150 to over 300. Yes. So you feel that you were providing something that parents needed? Oh, yeah. That, that is our whole purpose of our charter school is providing community service. And that is what we stand by is whatever our community needs and we step up to take care of them. What does your board say about this pickle that you're in at this point? So our board is willing and capable of trying to figure out a better solution. You know, we are trying to consult again with our attorneys, our legal team to figure out what what can we do so that our students, we do not have to unenroll our students, which is the last last thing we ever want to have to do. So we are going to try everything in our power to continue financially to be able to teach this many kids with half of the budget. And you have a a grant that allows you to continue operating uh, from a separate pot of money. The way that that grant works is a Native Hawaiian education grant and what that is is to help our community. And that's one of the grants that um, the SHOTS office did congratulate us on. It's, it is a hard grant to get. And so that focus of that grant is literacy in our Native Hawaiian community as well as college readiness in our community. We can't use those grant funds to subsidize this issue at all. That was Amanda Fung, principal of Kamalani, Kamalani Academy, whose enrollment doubled after offering an online program this fall. out of time. Up tomorrow, we will bring you the story of the man behind the Douglas fir Christmas trees. You know, if you missed a show this week, you can listen back on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, or by clicking on the on-demand option of the HPR mobile app. And don't forget, you can give us your thoughts and feedback by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation 